Welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. My name is Jason Brand, and I'm your host, and we have reached the season finale of season one of Human Nurture. And not only is this the finale, it's also about attachment theory, one of PAC's main ingredients. PAC stands for a psychobiological approach to couples therapy, and in this season, we have been looking at the 10 underlying elements that make up PACT. Not only is this about attachment theory, but it also features the renowned researcher Ed Schronick. And Ed joins us with his co-author, Claudia Gold, to discuss their recently released book, The Power of Discord, which just came out, and I highly, highly recommend it. Ed and Claudia offer a take on attachment theory that focuses on growth through the process of mismatch, mess, and repair. They look at this process through Claudia's clinical work and Ed's research on caregivers and young children through the Stillface experiment. It's a heartfelt episode that touches on the current discord in our lives as COVID-19 spreads across our world and the murder of George Floyd reverberates through protests in our streets. And of course, we're joined by the founder of PAX, Dan Tatkin, who provides us with his thoughts on the interview with Ed and Claudia, how attachment theory fits into PACT, and the overwhelming challenges of this moment in our lives. So a special thank you to Stan for joining us throughout the season, Ed and Claudia for being here for this episode, and to all of you for tuning in. It has been a real pleasure and a privilege to do this podcast throughout um, this year, and I look forward to seeing you all in season two. Hello and welcome to the Human Nurture Podcast. This is the season finale, and we are lucky enough to have two guests with us today. Um, First, we have Dr. Claudia Gold and Dr. Ed Tronick, um, and they wrote a really, really wonderful book that I'm um, excited to, to hear them talk about today, which is called The Power of Discord. And Dr. Gold practiced general and behavior pediatrics for 25 years, and, um, and she now works um, early in, with early childhood mental health. Uh, she's the director of a program that sounds really wonderful. It's called the Hello, It's Me Project. Um, and it's a rural community-based program designed to promote healthy relationships between infants and caregivers. She's written numerous, numerous articles and four books, including the one we're going to talk about. And her books really um, focus on developmental neuroscience. And the thing that I really appreciated about, about uh, what, I, what I understand of Claudia's work is just a deep listening ear to what, what families and kids um, and relationships, um, a certain a certain view on them that that um, that really puts an emphasis on listening and, and understanding um, from where people are at. Um, she's also on the faculty of the Infant Parent Mental Health Fellowship Program at the University of Massachusetts Boston, the Brazelton Institute of, um, at Boston Children's Hospital, and the Berkshire Psycho- Psychoanalytic Institute. So, welcome, Claudia. Thank you. And we've got um, somebody who probably for a lot of packed therapists and, and couples therapists who are listening to this needs no introduction, but I, I, um, it feels good just to, to say a little bit about him. Ed Schronick is a developmental and clinical psychologist. He's um, a distinguished professor of psychology at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, director of the Child Development Unit, um, a research associate in newborn medicine, a lecturer at Harvard Medical School, and associate professor at both the Graduate School of Education and the School of Public Health at Harvard. And um, as many of us know, he developed the still face paradigm, 
Um, and, um, and really what I'm looking forward to getting into today is the way that the still face paradigm can be looked at um, as, just, as just a starting place to talk about relationships and um, in so many different capacities. So I'm excited to talk about that. He's written four books, hundreds of articles, and his work has given us a great gift of seeing into the dance of early attachment between mothers and babies. And as you will hear in his work and research, it's a view into how we grow, struggle, love, and ultimately understand our lives. So welcome, Ed. Good to see you. Thank you. Nice to be here. So um, it's nice to have you both. And um, I, I, you know, there's a, there's a, you can feel in a book a kind of nice rapport, um, a back and forth that I'm sure was not, you know, that came at, uh, at, with a lot of work. But what was the process and how did you guys come together to write this book? Okay, so um, actually I've, I've never heard the real early origin story from Ed's perspective, but also I'll tell you from my perspective is that we had uh, lunch together and Ed was asking me, well, if you were gonna write a book, what would uh, you do to, to really capture all of my work? And I talked with him about it and then um, never in a million years did I think he was actually thinking of writing the book with me. <laughs> but, but then uh, um, in uh, August uh, of 2017, I got this email, which felt to me very much out of the blue. Would you like to write a book with me? So of course, I was thrilled. Um, I had actually was beginning to think about what I wanted to do for my next book already. I was in conversation with my agent. Um, and so that began a, then a three-year process. And I have to say it did uh, reflect very much the theme of the book. Um, because, and, and this is how I think of it. First of all, it was an extraordinary experience uh, for me. And um, I don't want to embarrass Ed, but Ed really has a great mind. <laughs> and to be able to like really wrestle with some very complicated ideas uh, it was, was really uh, very difficult, um, but really mind expanding for me in terms mm -hmm. that I would be the one sitting in the office with my families and thinking, now, how, what am I seeing here? And how does this fit with what Ed is saying? And then I would write something and then he would edit it and he would say, no, that's not really what I meant. And then, you know, we would have this back and forth. And then on the, on the, on another level was the logistical level you know, answering each other's emails. How, I expect emails to be answered right away. Ed has a much more loose interpretation of that. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, in terms of relating with our agent and who was, you know, I was the one who was sort of like, well, we got to do this now. We got to move it along. Uh -huh. um, so there was, a, there was that level too. Um, so uh, it was, it, it was really representative of the idea. And I think that our, you know, I think that, the book represents this really uh, this process that went on uh, between the two of us. Great. And um, Ed, anything to add there? First off, I, I, I think the, the process that we engaged in was, uh, was made the book more real because we, we would reflect on um, the fact that well, we're mismatching uh, between this, or we're going to repair it, or maybe um, this isn't a mismatch. This really isn't a mismatch. We're just misreading the, mm. uh, the situation. So our own process kind of instantiated what we were trying to say. And then while 
Claudia may feel surprised that I asked her uh, to join with me and 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 to write to write this book is that I had read the books that she had written before. We had, we had been associated with one another in the infant parent mental health program for several years. And I knew the kind of clinical experience uh, that she brought to, to that program and to her own books and, and how she was really reflective about what was going on. So I, I, I felt that, um, Perhaps it's a, a little bit of a, a, a joke, or or maybe it's more true than I realize. Is that she has this uh, really deep clinical experience, and she's very very thoughtful about it. And while I do have clinical experience in my background, I primarily see myself as a researcher and as a theoretician. So that I felt like. Um, if the two of us work together, we would become a complete person. <laughs> and therefore, we would be able to put together a really uh, meaningful kind of book that both had um, uh, a, a really strong clinical base to it with rich examples and a kind of and a, and a theoretical framework around it that that would uh, help to explicate what was going on. Um, mm. And so it was, it was really a wonderful, uh, wonderful process. And, and certainly uh, I know I learned just an enormous amount and, and came to a lot of clarity because of our work together on the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and it really shows. And um, I think it might be good at this point to just um, kind of introduce the uh, the kind of thesis of the book about mismatch, mess, and repair. Um, so, can you guys can you guys talk about that a little bit? Uh, I'll start. Sure. Um, uh, well, first of all, I think it became clear to me right from the beginning that that was Ed's objective to make that the core of the book. Um, and the idea is that whereas there's kind of a, a paradigm of attunement as an ideal quality in a relationship, um, and what Ed found in his research was that in our earliest love relationships are far from attuned perfectly, and that the, our growth happens because we have the mismatch because then that gives us the opportunity for repair, which provides the energy for our own individual growth and for our growth uh, in relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that idea, I mean, I think that that's such a, especially right now, I mean, this idea that, that attunement does not mean, you know, we're as, as Ed, as I've heard you describe that we're Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers here, you know, just completely moving together, which is such an, um, uh, uh, an unfortunate ideal that we can get stuck in, um, that it's really about the kind of, um, you know, the, the messiness of it and, and then learning about ourselves and each other, the relationship 
together. Um, and it's, a, it's an opportunity for that. And you guys write very eloquently about it. And I, I wondered um, if you would be willing just to share a little bit from the book about what this looks like, sort of the, 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 um, from the perspective of, of perhaps the still face and Claudia, from your sort of clinical work, um, if, the, if you can read a little bit of, of, of what this sounds like. Who would you like to have go first? Um, how about how about you, Claudia? Why don't you go first if you got it handy? Sure. So what I really love to do is call attention to very young infants because I think while people know a lot about toddlers and five-year-olds, the textured nature of parent-infant relationships is often not uh, really appreciated. So, and I also wanted to have a fairly short passage so okay um, <laughs> good idea i know that it, it, this is probably even long uh so if, if it's going on too long uh please stop me um okay. so aditi had anticipated tanisha's arrival with excitement and fear this was her first baby and she wondered how she would know what to do hours after giving birth she tried to put her screaming infant to her breast but tanisha's arms got in the way and her movements became increasingly disorganized Aditi began to speak, speak softly to Tanisha while wrapping her tightly, and soon she felt Tanisha's body go from tense to relax. The incessant crying slowed and finally stopped. Tanisha slept and then woke and vigorously latched onto nurse, and Aditi experienced a peaceful calm that until then had eluded her. The meaning she made of this experience, if she'd put it into words, might be, I can do this, and I know my baby. Now consider the same scene from Tanisha's perspective. Her tiny body wriggled. She screamed again and again as her arms flew over her head. Something was in her mouth, but she didn't know what to do with it. Then Tanisha heard a soft, gentle whisper and was wrapped in a warm blanket. Her breathing slowed. Now she could rest her arms on her chest and stop their wild movements. Her body relaxed as her need for help settle, settling her immature nervous system was answered, and soon she drifted off to sleep. After a brief nap, her body felt calm and restored. When her mother again put her to her breast, she latched on without struggle. The meaning Tanisha created might be expressed as, I am safe and I am whole. Mm, In, oh, not too long. Shall I go on? Or? Yeah, sure, a little bit more. It's, little it's more. beautiful, keep going, yeah. In this early moment of figuring things out together, Tanisha and Aditi began to fall in love. Aditi recognized that Tanisha was tired and her nervous system was stressed. She needed help from her mother to calm down and a brief nap to refresh her before she would be ready for a meal. Allowing time for the process to work itself out, literally fed Tanisha, while also nourishing Aditi's growing new identity as a mother, building her sense of confidence and self-efficacy. Moving from mismatch to repair provided actual nutrition for Tanisha and for Aditi, a kind of food for the soul. Mm. So nice, thank you. And, yeah, and I think what's so so critical in in that example is that were we looking at it, we the outsiders watching it, um, we might get focused on the those really positive moments and not see the 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 disorganization or the distress that was taking place and. The, the, the repair of that to get to that more positive state. Uh, as opposed to, I, I think, what we 
we tend, you talk about romantic relationships, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. I, I think we, particularly the mother-child relationship has a very romanticized kind of view that you're always, you're always in sync, you're always attached to one another, you're always present for the other person um, or for the, for the child or the parent is always that way. And I, I think it leads us into very problematic kinds of self-evaluation and evaluation of what's going on uh, in what are really good relationships uh, mm -hmm. that, that we're looking at. Yeah, and I was struck um, by the, the, the statistic in your book that 70%, if you, if you slow down and look at 70% of the, the secure functioning mother child dyads infant child infant mother dyads that um that 70 percent of of it is sort of a a, a mismatch is that mm. is that right oh it it, it it better be right it's i've, I've published it a couple <laughs> of times um and um it's not only the mismatch we do other measures um that look more directly at synchrony, and we we find pretty much the same kinds of findings. And and I think when when I was first doing that re research, I too had that view that the good interaction, which I was really wanting to understand what the ingredients of a good, quote unquote, good interaction, you know, that we we as clinicians might judge as good. Um, that I too went in with the assumption that, oh, we'll see a lot of, a lot of synchrony, a, a lot of matching, um, that there would primarily be positive affect. And, it, and, it, and I look back on it now, um, and it's kind of amazing to me because uh, I'm looking at interactions where right in front of me, mothers and infants, fathers and infants are playing with their infants, and it is not perfectly in sync, and yet I'm still seeing it through the lens of it being in sync, and I'm really captured by those positive moments. So it wasn't until I started looking at the actual data that I was collecting, which was coding the mother's behavior, looking, smiling, how close she was, coding the infant's behavior, and then looking at how they fit together, and suddenly seeing that a lot of the times they really weren't fitted together at all. The baby's looking off to the side, the baby's in distress, the parent is disorganized by the baby's distress. So on average, I was seeing about 70% of the time where there was mismatching. There were pairs that matched more and there were pairs that uh, matched less. But in neither case did I see interactions that didn't have a large proportion of time of mismatching or what we call the, the messiness of interactions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Claudia, um, I mean, putting such a, an intense focus on mismatch, mess, and repair in the process of writing this book and doing, it sounds like as you were writing it that you were doing clinical work what's it like to how, how does how does rupture how does how does messiness how how does it how does it change what you see in your office 
when you're when when you have such a keen eye focused on 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 this process well it, it as i've said before in these interviews suddenly it was everywhere you know i i have to say when i first started working with ed i i had a frame that comes sort of naturally out of attachment theory about reflective functioning and that what i was doing was creating a space for the parent to be curious about the meaning of their child's behavior and that that was the explanatory model for why things were getting better. But then I began to see that actually what was happening was that they misunderstood each other and that in that kind of space um, where things sometimes got very difficult, people cried, people got upset, you know, kids had tantrums, uh, that then they came to a new level of understanding each other. And that that was where these very powerful moments occurred. You know, those kind where you sort of feel a tingling in your arms, like when you have this really uh, affective shift uh, in the work came when, when we let a difficult moment happen. And whether it was in the telling of a story or, or often because I sit on the floor with kids, it actually happens right there in the office, like like a, a child is uh, wanting to control everything, and a parent is incredibly anxious, and and it's very very difficult. And then they, uh, I just first scene that comes into my mind it was a fairly recent story where uh, of an older child who had a new sibling, and the parents were really having a hard time reflecting on her the experience of the new baby so they were very controlling and there was this moment where she was trying to pour water into a cup and her mom just said you know after this was towards the end of the visit was able to kind of let her do it and literally make a mess in the office mm. you know pour the water it wasn't exactly in the cup it was actually on the table a little bit and and i was okay with it and she was okay with it and and that it was like they connected with each other in a way that they hadn't uh, for quite some time. And, and that, that was, so that was a very concrete example of, of mm. mess and repair. Mm. Nice. Yeah. yeah. And, and bef before we get before too, we far, too far, uh, Ed, would you mind reading your, um, just a little bit to kind of, kind of put your, your research in here as well? Sure. Um, I'm just bringing it up. Okay. Um, this is a description of um, the still face. Uh, and one of the things that happened to me over the, over the course of writing this book is um, really gaining, it'll sound odd, a kind of a, a, a greater appreciation for the still face and um, in particular for the whole paradigm, because when I first did the still face experiment, that was my focus, was babies and the young child's reaction to the still face mother. And now I see it as a, a much more uh, a kind of highlighted example of what we mean by match, mismatch and repair, that the paradigm is the mother playing with the infant, and doing the still face and we're creating a really big mismatch. And then, um, and then there's the, the whole repair episode, all of which has a lot of consequences. 
So here, here's a description of the still face. A young, dark-haired woman enters the room, her 11-month-old daughter on her lap. She scans the room, sees a high chair, approaches it, eases the now squawking child into the seat, and carefully buckles her in with the sky blue straps. Then the woman sits down facing the child, leans in to make eye contact and strokes both sides of her head with her hands. Are you my good girl? She croons and she crooned much better than I do. <laughs> baby, the baby now calm, raises her eyebrows and coos a sound of agreement. Then she points over her mother's shoulder with a decisive da. The mother turns her head to see where her daughter is pointing and turns back to her smiling, turns back to her smiling, acknowledging that she has seen it too. So, you know, here, here's in a sense, a moment in which there's this matching during, um, during the actual face-to-face -face kind of play. And I think it's a, what Claudia was talking about in terms of a sharing of meaning. There's this mutual recognition that they're both doing the same thing at, at the same time. They both have seen it too. So it goes on. She holds the baby's feet and tickles them. The mother smiles as the mother spider walks her fingers up on her leg. The mother takes the child's hands, clicking her tongue to keep her attention. Mother and daughter are engaged in a graceful dance of interaction. The mother turns her head to the side far enough that her daughter can only see her dark wavy hair. When she turns back, her face is expressionless, is an expressionless mask, like a robot. The baby immediately looks wary. She smiles at her mother, but her mother does not respond. The baby tries to engage her by pointing again. This time, her mother does not turn her head to see what is of interest. Her face is leaden. Her only facial movement is blinking very occasionally. Uh, 16 seconds have passed since the mother stopped responding. Just moving. The baby strains forward against the straps of the chair, reaching her hands out to her mother. The mother does not reach back or alter her expression. The child, now in distress, tries smiling one more time this time, her smile is wan. She tries clapping. Nothing. A minute and 18 seconds. When her mother continues to stare impassively, the baby screeches. She puts her hands in her mouth and looks away anxiously. She turns back to her mother and reaches for her again in a gesture of pleading. Her mother remains stone-faced. Finally, the baby gives up and begins to cry. She arches her back and turns away, desolate. At this moment, the mother's face comes back to light. She looks at her baby with a smiling, doting expression. She reaches for her baby's hands and croons. I'm here. I'm here in the same song tones she used earlier. The baby, still, still wary, hesitates a moment and smiles shakily and reaches out. 
mother and baby are together one minute and 30 seconds. That's, I presume, probably enough. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, well, the, so, I mean, it really, it really sort of illustrates, both examples really illustrate what happens when you kind of zoom in and go and, and look at it, you know, my, in the micro uh, moments. Um, wh- why does, why do these patterns, why, why do they last a lifetime? Um, why, what, what is it? I know it's a hard question, but why do, why do we carry this forward into, into our adulthood? I'm, I'm not fully sure of, of the answer, and I'm not fully sure that um, it's quite, quite the same pattern that, that we're seeing. The, the messiness in interactions um, serves a purpose, be it with infants or be it with, uh, in couples with, with partners, that the, the messiness allows for um, repairing and changing what's going on. And for the infant, and I think through early development, one of the things that the infant learns and then the young child learns and then the older child learns with the parents is that probably what characterizes the relationship with the parent over all all those years is that we can mess up, we can have problems, but we can repair it. I can feel, I can gain a confidence in my ability to repair the interaction. And so when we come to new relationships, we're hopefully bringing that feeling of confidence and robustness into the new relationship. How can I find ways to relate to you? How can I find ways to get connected to you? Because that was what my experience was, not just in infancy, but over many, many years in in relating to my parents and then to my siblings and then to my friends. And you can imagine, uh, or it's easy, to, it's easy to imagine, an individual who uh, doesn't have the still face effect all the time, but really has an experience of interactions which don't get repaired, that they don't get reconnected. And one of the lessons that that person learns is that when I have an experience of negative, a negative feeling in an interaction, I can't change it. Whereas the child who has experiences which are negative, but then get repaired, the child comes, if, if the child were speaking, the child would say, oh, we can change a really negative emotional experience into a really positive experience. And so they don't get stuck in the negativity that another individual might have experienced in their relationships. Yeah, yeah. One example uh, from Ed's research that we have in the book, which speaks to that idea of how do relationships get transferred across time, Mm -hmm. um, is in an example of babies who, had mothers with depression, and that the researchers who then interacted with those babies uh, 
experience uh, that they were they were challenging, but that they then felt it was something they were doing, um, mm -hmm. which is sort of like a baby transference, <laughs> and baby counter transference actually that uh, happens so that. So when you have a pattern of interaction that you bring from your early relationships, you bring that into other relationships and then people react to you in, in ways that then get repeated down the line as you grow in a process. Um, so it's not just that you have this way and then it affects you through the rest of your life, but it's an ongoing process of change. Um, and I think that that informs then when you are in a problematic set of relationships, that, and this is something we also talk about quite a bit in the book, that you need a whole uh, kind of milieu, environment of different kinds of relationships with, with different opportunities uh, mm. to give you a different sense of yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, if I can, just to emphasize that, I think one of, the, one of the other beliefs that many of us share about infancy or early relationships, be it from Freud or pretty much many, many different, different theorists is a kind of inoculation theory. And mm. it's a hard word to use these days, uh, but the idea that what happened very early in, in infancy uh, led you to be a particular kind of way and you are consistent and, and that's inside you and it doesn't change. Whereas I think the view or the view that we have is that early relationship, let's say it is problematic with a parent who's depressed or withdrawn, um, that you begin to learn a way of being with that parent. And that relationship with the parent continues to amplify itself, continues to grow. But now you bring that way of being to your other relationship. And so those relationships begin to get distorted. The, the research assistants who are interacting with a six-month-old infant, the way what Claudia was saying, they begin to find that they smile less, they engage less with the infant, they touch the infant less. And yes, they feel it's their fault. But in fact, the infant is taking the that way of being that the infant suggested with the mother into their interaction with the research assistant. And if that process isn't interrupted and changed, then they're going to affect many of their relationships throughout their lifetime in the same kind of way. But it's like you're always, how to, how to put it, it's as if the infant is always recreating and re-experiencing what they had before, um, hmm. even though, in fact, it, it has changed. But nonetheless, they bring this distortion into their other relationships. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the distortion <clears throat> part of it, I, um, you know, um, Winnicott is sort of a, he's sort of a third author in certain ways of this book. He really threads his way through so lovely. As, and, and, you know, his concept of going on being, um, and the and and um, you know the the idea of of madness um, as as not as you know as sort of our scary 
uh, understanding of you know what what uh, psychotic break maybe, but it's really uh, a breakup of personal continuity of ex- of existence is the way that the way that he describes it, which could be uh, more in the psychotic realm, but but really, I mean, just for our purposes, I think um, that that um, that disconnection in the continuity of going on being um, that happens in relationship and. Um, and Winnicott's role in the book. So those are two big things that I'm hoping that the two of you can kind of just take up and volley back and forth a bit. Well, um, to me, it was actually quite remarkable how many parallels there were between the work Ed has done and and Winnicott's writing. So so Winnicott has, uh, where he talks about the concept of going on being, he literally talks about X plus Y minutes. Like this is sort of the typical ongoing mismatch and repair that the mother goes away and comes back. And, and it's that kind of typical experience that gives the baby that sense of going on being like, okay, you're not here right now. I'm still here. Then you come back and that enhances my sense of myself as separate from you, but whole um, in relation to you. So that's kind of the healthy situation of mismatch and repair. And then he talks about X plus Y plus Z minutes. And in Ed's research, literally it's the number of minutes uh, leads to uh, levels of cortisol that, that are in excess. That, you know, so in a, in a more scientific biological realm, we see this, what was more uh, conceptual and clinical from uh, Winnicott. That then that that sense of yourself in the world as continuous begins to falter, and and we wrote about. I mean, we have all sorts of very difficult things going on in our world today. But but one thing we wrote about was when uh, babies were separated from their caregivers at the border. Uh, I mean, they still are, but it, you know, when that first was a very big news story, we wrote a piece about how for an infant the that kind of separation where they can't like hold on to the relationship in their mind. It's like, well, the mother doesn't exist anymore. And if the mother doesn't exist anymore, then I don't exist anymore. Um, And and that's uh, really the uh, extreme of the effects of uh, unrepaired uh, mismatch that lead to that really, um, uh, that very, very profoundly disturbing failure of going on being and and i think in in the current situation you can see the pictures of my grandkids and my daughter in in the background um personally i find it a challenge um to not be in contact with them and we make we have phone calls and we do facetime and all all of that kind of thing but some aspect of what's being missed is being uh, part of their lives. And so that loneliness is really, I think, is, is recognizing the, the, the threat of the virus. But I, but I think the, the loneliness and the challenge uh, to one's sense of self in the current situation uh, is very difficult to is, is really challenging and hard to hold on to. And that's despite the fact that I know what's going on. I have a pretty, I've now become an epidemiologist. You know, I, I know exactly what needs to be done. 
and how we how we need to be and i know where they are and all sorts of things but you you talked earlier you know jason you said earlier about um, you know why why is this this kind of continuity it's in part because in our bodies in our somatic systems one of the ways we get them to operate and to become is to be in contact with other people and um, all our all the cognition that we bring to it doesn't necessarily change the feeling when you're not in contact with them. when you're you're the the value of touch the value of being close and in presence of, of someone uh, is not necessarily something we understand but i think it has a a very profound effect on how we make meaning and how we feel about ourselves. Yeah. Can I go ahead, Claudia? Tag on to that because I, yeah, I also think that that is one of the core issues in the pandemic is that our sense of our we we have a sense of self in those moment to moment relationships with people, like whether it's just running into your neighbor at the drugstore, like it, it, that's, those kinds of things make our sense of identity. And then when we're suddenly uh robbed of that kind of moment-to-moment -moment interaction within the context of our lives it, it is our own identity really begins to falter and we need to purposefully do things to remind ourselves who we are in, in this very very kind of fundamental way mm -hmm. yeah yeah i saw my dad yesterday from a distance six feet and he looked at me he said you know jace this is getting this is getting really old and um, I just, you know, it's just, I felt that sort of like, yeah, the, the, whatever this distance is between us, it's, it's growing, it's, it's, there's a certain staleness in that mm -hmm. distance that doesn't, that we, that there's not the aliveness that's usually there. And I think we also, you know, need to bring in terms of this, in terms of our identities and the breakdown of identity here, as you're talking about, Claudia, as, you know, the, um, the, the BLM protests and um and you know the the hard look at the racial injustice of this country and how so much of our identities is built around our privilege so much of our identity is is built around you know our sense of safety um and and security within our homes and 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 the and not only are we going you know the breakdown of sort of you know not going to work not you know all this the digital communication that that, that is all new to our identities but also now we've got this social upheaval that's making us really question our identity so this is a major mm. heavy time yeah um i know i'm now i'm taking up a lot of airspace but i'll just doing answer great that. I'm thinking about it and then i'll defer to you ed but because i feel like um well first of all uh george floyd was murdered the day i received my book called the power of discord you know, I, I think that I've, I've felt this kind of responsibility to think about what is the relevance to the Black Lives Matter movement. And uh, my thinking about it has really shifted quite a bit to a more sort of, I think initially more superficial view of it. But I think that I, I've begun to think about it more like what you're talking about, that um, I've personally looked at things that I've had the privilege not to know about. <laughs> and things, you know, really looked at them, like going to a lecture and learning about things like, um, uh, hurt, um, well, well, just the really um, ingrained uh, institutional uh, structural racism and uh, 
and its effects and looking at it in much closer ways than I ever have before. And, and it's very unsettling, you know, and like you said, we already were unsettled. And, but I think that from the perspective of the book, I sit with that discomfort. You know, I, it's really, really hard, but I feel like it's not going to change unless a lot of us are very uncomfortable. And, mm -hmm. and, and we, we need to do that because things have been kind of smoothed over in a completely unacceptable way uh, for centuries. Um, so, so all of us in, in a very personal way kind of have a responsibility to be unsettled and, and feel um, disrupted in ourselves by learning about things that we've, as, as a white person, that I've kind of had the privilege not to know about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I certainly, uh, I very powerfully, uh, in a very disorganizing kind of way, find my my sense of self in the world and my sense of the world as really um, in some ways coming apart is is getting disorganized um, so that uh, being the oldest person on this right now um, you know I've, I've seen uh, more of these changes but I also grew up probably learning a much more uh, saccharine view of American history and who we are and what we are. The, the feeling of, uh, for example, this great experiment that we're part of and how we're making progress. Uh, that, and, um, you know, and I engaged that. I was in the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement. And now, you know, um, I've, I find myself aware of all the breaks and the discontinuities and the dis what turns out to be a disorganization in my sense of who I am in the current context and you know um, it's hard it's hard to make that reevaluation but in a way coming not coming out of the book but something I think we both brought into the book was the hoping to be able to hold on to the disorganization, hold on to it so that you don't short circuit the process. Because when you're really disorganized, and I'm feeling this, you know, every third day I feel really sort of flattened. And I'm safe and I'm fine, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, but when you really it it isn't it isn't pleasant to be disorganized and we're always trying to make ourselves feel really coherent um and to hold on to the disorganization as opposed to short-circuiting it solving the problem here are the answers let's move forward uh, which closes off possibilities that, that's why the messiness is so important. Being disorganized can be really challenging, but it can also allow one to come up with something new. Um, and parenthetically re related to what I said before in terms of being alone at home, and I'm not alone at home, I'm with my wife, and Lord knows we're still managing to get along with one another. But 
when one gets really disorganized, we turn to other people to help us. I mean, that's in part what the attachment system is about. And I don't think the Zooming and the Skyping and all of that really works that well in terms of that other person helping you to hold on to the disorganization at the same time, uh, giving you the continuity and, and the scaffolding that you need. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And um, I am, I mean, one area where I do feel hopeful is that, you know, that the way we've set up our lives is very complicated, you know, with these long commutes and every man for himself, every person for himself in a sense. And maybe this shakes things, you know, when you don't have a summer camp to send your kid to, it makes you think about, you know, your sister and your cousin and your grandmother and all these people mm-hmm. that are around you. Um, so that I'm, I am feeling somewhat hopeful in that uh, every third day, every, every second day, I would say, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I feel I, I get that. Um, the one, you know, uh, I, I, I was just doing a couples class and we, we did, we were focusing on um, mismatch, mess and repair. And one question that really came up was, you know, that is a model for growth um, is, is um, you know, people, go, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And, and we can see how we could do better at kind of just being more discovering, curious when we're in these places. And then inevitably the question comes up, but what about the big poop in the pool? You know, I mean, what about that, that moment where the, he or she or they really fucked up? And, you know, and like, what, what about that? Um, and so I know this is sort of an impossible question, but I wonder how I wonder how you guys reckon with with this um, with this question. You want, you want me to start again? Okay. Yeah. So, well, I mean, obviously, I'm not a couples therapist, um, and I, so I don't really know. I have no expertise about that moment when ruptures are not repairable, which is something that obviously people do divorce, you know, so there, there must come a time where it's, there is no repair. Um, and so I, I don't know how to speak to that um, from this model, but I will say that I've seen that things, there can be really big disruptions that allow for a couple to split apart uh, and then come back together. You know, so it's not, it doesn't have to be necessarily this moment to moment thing, but like, I mean, I I have uh, a relative, I'll just share an example where um, they, one person in the pair started uh, medical school and the other person was in business. And so, and they had been together for a long time. Now this was profoundly disorganizing to the couple and they, they, they ended up breaking up. Um, And, uh, after multiple attempts to try to figure out how to put these new ways of being together. And then at another stage in each of their development, their development, they recognize that they actually really wanted to be together. And then when another challenge in the medical training came along, they had already been through that and they had navigated the the issues. And so that when they happened again, they knew what to do. And so that was an example of really allowing the big, rupture to happen and then to lead to a kind of growth in the relationship so that's just one example i'm not yeah, sure how helpful nice. that is <laughs> no it's helpful it's helpful Ed, did you want to add anything to, the, to that well 
you'll see the complementarity between between Claudia and I. The 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 way I think about um, uh, this kind of process, like how do you deal with the really the the big ruptures in the relationship, and and keep in mind that we're talking about when we're talking about mismatches and repairs, we're we're talking about really small little disconnections. Some of them get bigger, some of them get larger. You know, someday we could possibly write about you know some kind of scale, if you will, of the repair and then the rupture and then you know, Lord knows, like falling off a cliff or, or, or something, or as you put it, very aptly, really fucking up. Um, one of the interactions that um, I've seen is a mother who, where the infant is uh, holding on to the mother's hair. They're doing the, the little game of the mother snuggling into the baby. And this is a six month old, baby grabs hold of her hair and she starts to pull back and the baby doesn't let go. And in, in that moment, she makes a genuine angry face at the baby. Actually, she makes what in primate literature is called a bare tooth grin, which is a threat. And this baby reacts immediately, puts his hands up in front of his face um, as if he's about to get hit or Something's about to, you know, come at him. The mother immediately changes. She recognizes something's gone wrong here and tries and works to repair the interaction. Well, it takes about 30 or 40 seconds before they fully engage with one another. Now, I know that's 30 or 40 seconds. Doesn't seem like a long time. But in the world of micro events, that's a really big amount of time. Um, but in figuring out that repair, which is bigger than the typical repairs that they have to use, they've developed or learned or together have put together a, a way of coping with a bigger repair. And it's now part of their repertoire. So I, I think about repairs a little like training, I, I've called it the marathon hypothesis. You know, you don't run marathons as the way to train. You train by exercising every day, all the week, you know, very systematically. And what you do is you build up this capacity that remains unused until you run the marathon. Hmm. And when you run the marathon, you draw on this reservoir and given what I've seen in the marathons here, you really use up all of that uh, reservoir. But you come into the marathon with this supply of resilience. And so in relationships, what we talked about before, when you have a history of repairing small repairs, bigger ones, the bigger break, you know, you get really pissed off in the relationship, and finally, you come to some big violation. In many cases, you now have this reservoir to deal with. And by the way, I also think it's what the therapist does is by supplying 
some scaffolding, some, some of that uh, regulation, some of that uh, repair or holding the couple and giving his or her resources to the couple. It allows the couple to, to find their own resources for working on what, what the problem is. Um, so that in a sense, the therapist is holding them, to use Winnicott's term, you know, the, the therapist is holding them so that they don't have to use every bit of their res resources to work things out. Therapist does part of the work and they do more of it and hopefully, or, they work it out, uh, but, but if you demanded that they worked it out completely on their own, it might really exceed their capacity to do it. Mm, very nice, very nice. And um, thank you guys. I mean, this is, um, you know, it feels like we, we kind of went deep fast, which is great. And I wanna be, I wanna be um, cognizant of your time. I wonder if there's, um, you know, that the therapist will be listening to this and when they read your book, I mean, you know, um, either you can take your pick um, as a way to close here. Um, a wish that you, you know, that, that, you know, giving therapists some, some strength and, you know, kind of what they need based on from, from, you know, from the book or what you'd just like them to get out of the book if, you know, when they read it. Do you have, do you have either of those come to mind? Um, I would say uh, in the therapy session, as in, uh, all relationships, the mistakes are the good part. Um, so, so that when uh, you, that, that, I mean, obviously there's a huge literature on the, the rupture repair model of, of therapy, but I think that those opportunities where you feel like you really said the wrong thing and, and, and the client got upset and stormed out of the room and that, that over the course of, of, working with, uh, I've certainly found this with families and as myself as, as a, in therapy, um, that it's those moments that when you look at the whole process are really where the changes occur. So mm -hmm. to embrace your own, uh, you know, imperfection uh, as a therapist, um, I think is uh, what, what I would say to therapists reading the book. Mm, thank you. Um, what I'm reminded of is when when I was in um, at the end, quote unquote, the end of my analysis, which never really ended, it just slowed down a little bit. Um, my my analyst, uh, who was from the south, uh, invoked what he called the hedgehog rule, and the hedgehog rule was uh, something to the effect of, you see, I still have problems with it, but something to the effect of when you, the more certain you are that you are absolutely right, that you in fact truly, truly know what's going on in a situation, you should know that it's probably has nothing to do with the situation that you're dealing with and it's the worst possible state you could be in. And that would have saved me thousands of dollars had I known that rule beforehand. But what he was pointing at was what Claudia was saying, that there has to be this messiness, there has to be this kind of disorganization taking place. 
and it's valuable and you need to hold on to it. And when you see relationships that are really interlocked, and in fact, in the infant parent work, the most contingent interactions are the ones that are the most negative to watch. They're, they're ones that we would judge as being really problematic. And the good interactions are the ones that have back and forth and messiness or whatever. And there's uh, the capacity to hold on to that, not be frightened by it, and then to repair it, and then to move on to the, the next thing. So I would ask the therapist to see what kind of playfulness, you know, what kind of mess there is going on. How messy is it really? It may look very negative, but as you know, it can be sort of that rigid dance that everybody gets into. Um, and it seems messy, but it's not. Um, and then what's the capacity for people to repair what's going on? So, you know, it's really, it's just fascinating to, to think about how to do it. Mm. Well, Claudia Gold, Edtronic, it's been such a pleasure, um, such a lovely way to spend an hour. I thank you guys for your time and for what you wrote and, um, and for joining me today. Thank you. Thank this you for great. having us. Thanks, okay. Well, until next time, take care. Hi there, Stan. Hey, Jason. Nice to see you. So we're we're getting into the uh, to the attachment interview with Edtronic and Claudia Gold, um, and this is a big question. But maybe um, in the quick version, um, how does attachment fit into PACT? <laughs> it doesn't. What's attachment? <laughs> uh, it's it is you know PACT is not an attachment theory or attachment approach. It just attachment's part of it. So, uh -huh. you know, it, it always worries me when people get stuck on just, it's all about attachment because attachment is a part of something. It's an important part of something. It's, it's, it is a safety, it's the, sa the felt sense of safety and security as, as subjectively experienced by an infant, child, teen, adult. And that's it. Um, uh, and that's important. But it, but it, it, it's not necessarily character personality formation. It can appear that way, right? There are characteristics of personality in the defensive structures of insecures, um, which is why they sound so familiar to uh, to disorders of the self when they get extreme. But they're simply about safety and security, and it's about memory um, of dependency, and it's fluid. As uh, as Ed talked about, and as Dan Stern, because um, uh, Dan and Ed uh, were uh, comprised the Boston Change Group, a fabulous, fabulous research group, still continues. I think informally, but Beatrice Beebe, Carlin Lyons Ruth, people were really like stars in this field of infant attachment. So. Um, so with with uh, with Daniel Stern, this idea of of object relations, which attachment's based on, uh, is a fluid process that's constantly changing, upgrading, and being influenced by current relationship. 
mm-hmm. but it's also we're also dragging with us um, memories and anticipatory threat from the past that influence current relationship as mm-hmm. well. So it's both. Yeah, it just, this just jumped in my mind. Were, were you surprised at all to hear Winnicott being such a, a crucial part of the book and of their thinking? Was that a surprise to you at all? Not at all. Winnicott, mm-hmm. uh, Winnicott was the first person to actually study real babies and mothers. Everybody else did it through reconstructive analysis. And so, uh, so Winnicott did this by literally studying uh, thousands and writing about thousands of mother-infant interactions. Winnicott was an analysis of, um, of Melanie Klein, but he really departed um, through his experience with mother and uh, mother infants and his writing and his own personal experience is so moving as well with mm-hmm. his wife um, that he's one of the best reads today still. So Winnicott uh, is very much in line with uh, attachment object relations uh, as was Fairbairn, by the way, um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in England. So, so yeah, no, I'm not surprised at all. Okay. Great. And what, um, anything that just really stood out to you that people should listen for in the, in the interview that, that you want to highlight? Well, bo- both um, Ed and, and Claudia are talking about mismatch mess repair. And I love that because it, it is, uh, it is the, the same. And we were talking, you and I were talking about it prior, um, the same as, uh, you know, Melanie Klein's, uh, you know, injury and repair which for a child only really comes about during the depressive period, right? During a certain developmental stage, uh, post-edible. But the, that, that repair process is, uh, it starts with the very beginning with the, uh, with the caregiver. And so Winnicott talked about in terms of good enough mothering, right? Good enough mothering means uh, there's there are disruptions in the fee, in the sub, intersubjective field in a, uh, in attunement. That's normal. That's supposed to happen. It can't possibly uh, be otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also the same thing as attunement, misattunement, reattunement. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same as um, you know uh, making errors, errors of appraisal and then correcting those, right? All of these are the same thing with the emphasis on fixing things, repairing, getting back on track, finding a way back in to secure the relationship and to create a sense, a felt sense of safety again mm-hmm. in, in the pair, right? And this is led by the parent in the beginning, of course, because the child has no faculty for doing that. Mm-hmm. I just, I was just flashing to you in my mind saying, fix it, fix it. Like you're with couples. <laughs> right. Just fix it. Yeah. <laughs> just fix it. Uh, right. Right. And the uh, 70% <laughs> number. Um, the, sounds, really, uh, sounds really skillful. So like, get over it. <laughs> That's right. No, it's not. It's not. I think that it's, it's, no, it's not that. It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's not that. The 70% um, in the still face. So, um, so, even in, I said secure functioning, but, but it's not secure functioning. It's secure uh, infant parent dyads. There's still mismatch mess repair within there. There has to be. 
it's it's not it's not possible um you know th think think of what the, the the existentialists though they were incomplete in their analysis uh as james masterson put it uh they were correct this idea of 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 two minds being the same one-mindedness of being able to match the other is an illusion we only approximate each other's minds so we're constantly in a process of finding and losing and finding and losing each other of of uh, of approximating with especially with language but also with pro with uh, uh prosody with movement with facial expression with you know all these things that are interpreted by an audience other than us that it, it is impossible to to expect at any time uh, a constancy uh it is there are constant disruptions in that field um, because we don't have the same mind, we don't have the same eyes, the same body, the same experience. It, uh, it, it's just a, a ridiculous notion. So it's, it is a fait accompli that we're going to misattune, mismatch. And that mismatch, in, in the process of a sustained mismatch, there's a mess. What is the mess? Two nervous systems that become, uh, that move towards dysregulation. Because of the unfriendliness experience of being mismatched, of being misattuned. And, and if it's sustained, there's more and more uh, um, upset, for lack mm -hmm. of a better word, in both the caregiver and the baby. Also in partners too. The longer and the more sustained a misattuned moment is, the more threat begins to arise because um, uh, where our separateness is, is now uh, incredibly evident and painful. And try as we might, we don't seem to be able to reconnect or re-attune. Uh, uh, re and that's, therein lies the problem of human interaction, mm -hmm. is, is, is the amount of space between a mismatch the mess and the repair mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's there it is right there um that's that is a, a a way of looking at what causes all the trouble um because of our primitive minds that are always on the lookout for threat cues a threat cue is also a mismatch right um ed's still face is a mismatch the, there's a signal and there's no response and that's disturbing. Uh, it's disturbing. It, it feels aggressive. It feels uh, uh, like uh, predatory afterward, after a while. And so uh, this is how sensitive we are uh, to this intersubjective phenomenological process of co-regulation. Mm -hmm. Co-regulation. Mm -hmm. Which is why a lot of people, uh, when they're neglected, you know, rely on auto-regulation. Forget all that. I'll just play mm -hmm. by myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of therapists like Ed was describing, get into the field wanting to sort of um, to, to make, to, to make things good between people, you know, I mean, yeah, to make, yeah. to, to have these easy interactions between people, make them. But um, you know, I found very helpful after the interview sitting with, with couples was 
just that mess is mess is part of the deal. Mess is, you know, I mean, being in mess, watching mess um, is not something to be afraid of. It's not, it's, 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 um, it's where the growth comes from. It it absolutely is. It it is, it, it is exactly what is in the way of and what actually creates the bonding between human beings. It, it, it gets in the way of it, right? Which causes us to square, square off or to go to war. But it also creates the bonding, which makes us, you know, uh, blood brothers, blood sisters forever um, when it works. So um, I just got distracted by, um, by a Zoom alarm that just still scared the hell out of me in my ears. <laughs> I, I, I wish they would stop that. Um, but the mess is the thing. And, and why that's so important is that people who are conflict avoidant are, are going to create a huge mess by trying to avoid mess hmm. because it's a, mess is unavoidable in the human world, the interactional world. And to avoid it is to be dangerous to another person. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very hard message to get across to, to a, a big majority of people who are oriented towards avoiding conflict, avoiding engagement, avoiding a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that they're creating a mess by mismatching. Considering the state of our world right now, is there just, do you have a, you know, I mean, there was a lot of talk about that in the episode. Um, do you have just a message to people or, uh, or um, you know, one of the ideas that I liked is that the loneliness and challenge of the current situation, again, identity begins to falter without knowing ourselves in the familiar contexts. Is there anything that you want to say about that or about uh, this current time? Um, the, the reason that's profound is because while we're in this period of existential unknowns and threat, we're also having all of these things, these apparatuses that are taken away from us, have been taken away from us, that allow us to have excuses for distancing, excuses for being together, uh, that give us reason to be doing things and to feel that we're purposeful and useful. And to have all that taken away is not only very depressing, <laughs> but also uh, I think hits self-esteem, a sense of self, because our self, a sense of self is constantly being shaped and, uh, and organized by the multitudes of interactions we have with various people in various environments. Mm. And to have that shut off all of a sudden, it's, it's like solitary confinement. We're left alone with, with something without our things, our tools, mm. our mechanisms, not just escape hatches, but, but our, our reasons for being. Mm-hmm. And, and that's another thing that I think is upsetting the apple cart. Um, and I, I've been very busy in my work, but I've all, this has also been very depressing for me. Mm. I've, I've been fighting mm-hmm. de- depression um, since you know this carries on because of all these other factors, not to mention the angstiness that mm-hmm. is around with everybody. So um, I will say this one thing that I think is, is a very good thing. What I've noticed with people is that that the conditions that exist and everything I just said 
also for many are, is, is providing an, an accelerant for them to grow faster mm. and to deal with their inner demons. Mm. Because, uh, um, uh, for instance, if I were accustomed to constantly getting my distancing need by flying and being able to travel at will, and I can't mm -hmm. anymore, I may not know that I have a problem in this area mm -hmm. that, I, that I've managed by my career, that I've managed by being, keeping busy. Mm -hmm. that's, an ex that's one example. And if, I, if I'm willing to do so, and hopefully you know, suffering is a good reason to do something, uh, it gives me a reason to wonder about what I've been doing and why and what's been pushing me around. And so there is an opportunity here, though it sucks because it's being forced on us. There is an opportunity to grow faster, to become better, more knowledgeable about ourselves as we have to deal with the absence of things mm. that, that have made us aware of, of something that's been there all along. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. And, and I think it'd be, it's very useful with couples who are coming in with the, okay, so, you know, it's time to really get some of these patterns figured out that you don't have the, you know, you don't have the, uh, the luxury anymore of, of letting these things sort of simmer and sit and, and rot in a lot of ways. This has to be dealt with because of the burden that we're all bearing at this time. Yeah. And there are just things that are in our face we can't avoid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if looked at the right way and having the right outlet to do it, um, that's a very good thing. At mm -hmm. least it's, it's, it's a way to look at this as, as getting something for, for this because, um, you know, it, it definitely is not a pleasant time for anybody no. on the planet. But I, no. I'm sure there are some people it's great, but <laughs> fuck them. <laughs> well, Stan, I'll let, you, I'll let you go. I so appreciate the time, and um, this also concludes season one of the podcast. So, I uh, so I just so appreciate all your time and guiding us through this. And um, be well. You too, my friend.